good morning. Before we uh, jump in this morning, I just want to say a huge thank you to our band this morning, Matthew and Ryan and the whole crew, uh, for jumping up. Uh, as, as Matthew mentioned at the beginning of this, uh, Ben, our, our worship pastor, has been uh, pretty sick the past few weeks, uh, spent this past week in the hospital um, in a really difficult time at the beginning of the week, uh, very critical at the beginning of the week, but power of prayer is awesome, and uh, he is progressing through, slowly getting better. Uh, he's actually texting us back now, which earlier in the week he wasn't, and so uh, just uh, just praise God for, for, for that, for the healing that he's experiencing. It's a slow process uh, coming through this, but we're, we're hoping that he gets to come home in the next few days and slowly start to work his way back up here, but uh, just a big thank you to our crew here. Um, Tracy's on vacation this week, and so uh, we sent out the, uh, yeah, <clears throat> we, we sent out a, uh, an email to our entire music team just saying, uh, hey, we need some help, and we, every, every member of the team, every member of the team said, whatever you need, we're here. So Matthew, Ryan stepped up. Um, Thank you to the rest of the staff who, who have stepped up with, with Brad and Tracy both on vacation and been out. We all picked up a little bit extra, but uh, man, God's good, and we were able to come here and, and glorify him and worship him uh, anyway. A couple quick announcements before we jump in this morning real quick. Coming up here in a couple of weeks, we have Christmas Eve. Actually, we're going to do this one first. Closer look. Never mind. There it is. <laughs> Tell me what to say, Stan. We'll start with this one. Uh, if you've been considering joining the church here, or if you would like to know more about us as a church, we have a class called Closer Look. Uh, it's January 8th. You can read more about it there in your bulletin. But the basics of this class, you, you kind of find out, again, the basics of our church, where we came from, how we started, what we believe, what we stand for, uh, how we do things. Uh, if you want to join the church, uh, you need to come to this class um, there on that day and, and uh learn more about it. I would really encourage you to do that because it just, again, it really tells you who we are, uh, what we believe, uh, and, and really sets you up to understand our church better. Also, too, coming up here in a couple of weeks, as I started to mention a moment ago, uh, we have uh, Christmas Eve and Christmas, uh, day after Christmas services or Christmas celebration services, uh, 2.30 and 4 o'clock on the afternoon of Christmas Eve, and then on Sunday the 26th, again, just one service that day at 9.30 uh, right here in this room. Uh, it's going to pretty much be the same service as Christmas Eve. So if you come to Christmas Eve services and you head out of town, you're not going to miss anything on Sunday morning. Uh, unless I fall off the stage or something like that, you'll miss that. But you won't miss anything content-wise, okay? We've also got a bunch of these little cards right out here in the foyer on the table uh, where the communion is. I would encourage you, grab a few of these cards. Uh, you can hand them out to your neighbors, to friends, random people on the street, uh, have them come with us because what we're going to do on that night is just celebrate the birth of Jesus. And we're going to do that together as a family uh, and, and, and have a great time as we do that. I got a question for you as we jump in this morning, especially for you uh, parents out there. As you um, had your kids, what went into the process for you of naming your kids? Like, like what was your thought process? What what was your motivation for that? Uh, did you name them after somebody? Did you find a name that you liked? What, what went into it? Our oldest, uh, you, you've heard me talk about my kids a little bit. and If you're a preacher, your kids are fair game. They supply you with sermon illustrations for a couple of decades. But my oldest, Elsie, hers is kind of a backwards name because we had her middle name picked out before 
I think we were even married. Jennifer and I came together uh, through the death of a friend, and I'll tell that story at another time, but her name was Kelly Brooks Hyatt. And we decided that we didn't want to use Kelly because that's also my dad's name, but we wanted to use her middle name. And so boy or girl, our first kid was going to have the middle name Brooks. And uh, Kelly was 26 when she passed away. She had cystic fibrosis. I went to school with her from first grade all the way through high school and was was a friend of hers. My wife went to church with her growing up. She was just one of those people that lit up everybody else's world just was a wonderful person. And so we wanted our first child to have her name. And so we actually eliminated some first names because they didn't sound good with Brooks. And about six months in, we were going to try to be surprised whether she was a boy or a girl. Six months in, our doctor let it slip. Um, and uh, we finally decided to name her Elsie. And um, Elsie didn't really have any particular significance to to either one of us. We just found the name and we liked it. Uh, In particular, I knew it was the name of a milk cow. My wife didn't. I kept that secret because uh, I knew she would rule it out if she did. And and when we told her mom, we're going to name her Elsie, she was like, the cow? (laughs) Jennifer looked at me and was like, I don't know what she's talking about. (laughs) But... uh, Elsie Brooks. And as we started looking up the name Elsie, what does it mean? Well, we found out that it's a derivative of the name Elizabeth, and Elsie means that I'm pledged to God. I'm pledged to the Lord, or God is my oath. I thought, well, that's pretty cool. We'll name our first child that. We're going to pledge her to God, and we're going to dedicate her to the Lord. And parents, you know how this works, too. You put all this effort into your first child, and then after that, it's like, yeah, whatever. We'll just pick a name. So our second one came along, and we didn't know what Amelie was until she was born. We were totally surprised there. We took a few names to the hospital with us, and we picked the name Amelie, totally random. (laughs) We found it. We kind of liked it. We found that it was the French version of the name Emily, and my wife had a really close friend named Emily that she went to Bible college with and was friends with through her time in, in, in missions work. And then picked the name Joy because it just sounded good together. And the funny thing is when you look up the name Amelie, what it means is I strive to work hard. And if you know my middle child, that's the most ironic name she could have (laughs) because that's not her. Now, her middle name is very fitting. She's a very joyful person. Our youngest, Titus, we, we had the name Titus picked out all three kids. If, they were, if, if either of the other two were boys, they would have been Titus as well too. Titus doesn't really have a meaning. It's, it's kind of interesting when you look it up. It's in the Bible. There's a book of the Bible. There was a disciple of Paul named Titus, but nobody really knows what it means. Some people think that it's the Latin form of the word title and that somebody who had a position just kind of inherited that name and that that's where it came from. The English version of the name Titus means pleasing. And if you know my son, again, that's an ironic name for him. I was thinking of that yesterday as he was sitting downstairs. I was watching a a soccer game, and and he's standing on his head on the couch, kicking me in the side. Like, yes, you are a pleasing individual right now. His middle name is my middle name. We gave him the name Jeffrey, which I was uh, given that name because that's the name of some some, uh, a very close friend of my, 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 uh, my mom's, my parents. And so it's a name that's been handed on down. And, and, and we think about this. This is what we do with names, right? We name our kids typically one of two things, after somebody or a name that we just really like. And that's typically where we tend to fall. Now, yes, maybe some of us will, will find a name based strictly on the meaning, but often it has to do with the name that we like. But that's not the case in every culture. And in particular, the culture of the Bible 
names had much more to do with a deeper meaning. And in fact, some of the names, like we're going to talk about today, as we ask the question, what's in a name, had eternal significance. In Luke chapter 1, the angel shows up to Mary to tell her that she's going to have a child and that this child is going to be the son of God. And and the angel tells her this in Luke 1 verse uh, 30. He says, to not be afraid. You found favor with God. You'll conceive and give birth to a son and you'll call him Jesus. Now in this case, Mary's not getting to pick the name of her child. The angel tells her what the name's going to be. And often for us, names are marks of identification. If somebody says to you, Kurt, or if you say the name Kurt, maybe you're referring to me, or maybe you're referring to somebody else named Kurt. It's an identification mark. You say a name, and somebody typically pops in your head when you, when you hear that name. But in this culture, names weren't just identification marks. A name was given to a child because that name was a symbol of the hopes and dreams the parents had for that child and through that child. And so they're told you're going to name your child Jesus. Now, as we stop this and we ask this question, what's in a name? I think we need to stop and ask ourselves a couple of questions as Christians. So if you're a Christian, these are two questions I think we all need to be able to ask and answer. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe you're checking the church out or you're checking Jesus out or somebody dragged you here today, there's two questions too that I think that you should ask and be able to answer. Here they are. The first question is simple. Who is Jesus? And the second question, which is a little bit more important question, is why did he come? Well, who is Jesus? That's an easy one to answer. He's the son of God. That's what the angel told Mary. That's what the angel is going to tell Joseph. This is God's son. That's the simple answer. Yes, it's a deep answer, but it's a simple answer. But the second one, why did he come? Well, that gets answered a few days later. Because a few days later, the angel shows up to Joseph, and the angel comes to Joseph to reassure him. Because Mary's pregnant, and Joseph is engaged to be married to Mary. They're not married yet, and she's pregnant. And that means one thing to Joseph. (laughs) Mary's not been faithful. That's what is automatically going to be his reaction to this. So the angel shows up and says, no, 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 she hasn't been. No, she hasn't. This is God's son. And when the angel shows up to Joseph, he tells him the same thing, but then takes it a step further. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, he says, She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he'll save people from their sin. little quick Bible history here with this verse in mind. Saving people from their sin. The Bible, as you read through it, it is one continuous story from beginning to end what we might call a meta-narrative. It's got a bunch of smaller stories inside, but it's one continuous story. And as you begin this story in the book of Genesis, and and just so you know, here in a few weeks, we're going to start a series at the beginning of the year. We're going to go through the entire Bible. We're going to go through the entire themes of the Bible. It's going to be a long series, hitting every major theme going through it. I'm looking forward to this, and I encourage you to come be with us at the beginning of the year as we do this. But what we see is that God created this perfect paradise in the beginning. And, and he created man and woman to live in this paradise, and he came with them in this paradise. He would walk with them in the garden. He would talk with them and exist with them. Everything was pure and perfect, just like it's supposed to be, like heaven will be one day. But in Genesis 3, we, we, we see what happens. That somewhere along the line, man doesn't fully trust God. And yes, the the serpent comes in, the devil comes in and tricks Adam and Eve. 
but he, he tricked them because he, he got them to not fully trust him and says, well, God doesn't totally know what he's talking about. You can do this. And sin enters the world. And when sin enters the world, suddenly God can't be there where sin is. And, and, and so he removes the man and the woman. He takes them out of the garden. And he puts an angel with a flaming sword at the end of Genesis 3 to guard the exit or the entrance so they can't come back in. And then through the rest of the story of the Old Testament, which goes through the book of Nehemiah and the book of Esther, we read about the, the nation of Israel and through all of their, their turmoil and struggles. And the long and short of it is they would trust God and things would be going well. And suddenly they would decide they didn't need God anymore and, and get a little too arrogant and, and they would fall and eventually they would either become captives of another nation or become oppressed by another nation or they would be exiled somewhere else and they would go through this period of darkness and hopelessness and oppression and eventually cry out to God and he would save them and rescue them and then they would trust him and they would get a little too arrogant and, and fall. And it's just a cycle over and over throughout the Old Testament. And we read about the Psalms and the Proverbs and, and, and books like Song of Solomon and, and these books of poetry that plug back into the story of the Old Testament. And then the last part of our Old Testament is all the prophets, God speaking through different men and women, speaking through them to the nation of Israel, reassuring them that, hey, focus on me and, and you'll be okay. And those all plug back into the story of the Old Testament. But God would tell them through the prophets that a, a Savior was coming. And, and, and the cycle went on. And I don't know if you realize this, but as you read through the Bible, it's easy to maybe look at one page and turn to the next page and think that this is just the next thing in history that happened. But there's gaps in the timeline as you read through the Bible, sometimes paragraph to paragraph, sometimes page to page. Maybe it's a few days, maybe it's a few months, maybe it's a few decades. There's gaps in there. And in particular, when you get to the end of the Old Testament and you read the book of Malachi, and you flip, and there's that blank sheet of paper in your Bible, and then there's one that just says New Testament, and then it's the book of Matthew. It's easy to think, okay, we're on to the next week now. That's 400 years on that blank page. 400 years of silence. Now, history existed, and you can read about that history outside the Bible. You can see what's happened to the people of God. It's the same thing, oppression. And now they're under oppression from the people of Rome. In fact, they were under oppression, and they cried out to the Romans to come help them and save them. And the Romans did and thought, you know, we like it here. We're just going to conquer this land. And they took it over. But there's been 400 years now of nothing from God. Silence. Generation after generation wondering if what their grandparents told them about this Messiah was even true. 400 years of wondering, God, is he really out there? Does he really care? Is he real? Does he exist? 400 years of silence. Nothing from God. Until he shows up in Luke chapter 1. And he speaks to a man named Zechariah. And he, he speaks to his wife Elizabeth. This couple that like Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament were way past the ages of having children, but he blesses them with a child anyway. And they have a child that's going to become John the Baptist. And then about six months later, he speaks to this teenage girl, a cousin of Elizabeth's named Mary, and to her fiancé, Joseph, and says, you're going to have a child, and he's going to save his people from their sins. Those sins that they've been living in for centuries and centuries. 
This wasn't just the angel coming to Joseph to reassure him, hey, don't worry about Mary. She's not been unfaithful to you. No, this isn't just reassurance. This is an eternal declaration that the God of all creation is about to come to his people. In fact, that's what he tells Joseph next in verse 23. He says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. These names, Jesus and Emmanuel, the two names of Jesus here. Emmanuel is not a name that we typically use for Jesus that often. We do it at Christmas time. O come, O come, Emmanuel. But Jesus is the name that we use for him. Jesus is the great version of the Hebrew name Yeshua. Yeshua is, is defined as Yahweh saves. Very simple. And what I love about this, the idea that Yahweh saves is Yahweh was one of the names of God in the Old Testament. There's several names for God, but Yahweh is the most personal. It's the one that Jews would cry out to. Yahweh means my Lord, my God, the one who, who leads me and guides me and saves me. Yahweh saves. In fact, when you look through the Old Testament and you see the word Lord, it's all capital letters. That's Yahweh. It makes it personal. Yahweh saves. That's what Jesus means. Through Jesus, God is promising salvation. And what I love about these two names is they categorize Jesus perfectly. The name Jesus describes what he does, but the name Emmanuel describes who he is. God with us. God coming to us. And the angel said he's going to come and save his people from their sin. He's going come to come to us and be with us. A couple of weeks ago, I, I preached and I, I mentioned that Jesus said in the Gospels three different times why he came, what he came to do. He says, I came or the Son of Man came to bring life to the full and to serve others. Remember the third, Luke 19? He came to seek and save the lost. That's who he was and what he did. That was part of his very mission. So Jesus, the Son of God, coming to the earth to save the world. The one thing about me that, if you don't already know this, that you'll, you'll learn pretty quickly is sometimes I preach like I study. And I don't like to just know the what. I like to step back and know the why, too. I've got a daughter who's the same way, and she drives me crazy. But for me, this is how I, I like to peel the onion back a little bit more. So if we're going to ask the question, why, or Jesus came to, to, to save the world, to save his people. I need to step back and ask the question, well, then why do we need somebody to come and save us? Why did we need that? The answer is simple, and it's not a very fun answer, but we're sinners, and we're stuck in that sin. And you may say, but, but I'm a good person, and I take care of people, and, and, and I do the right thing. And maybe you do. Maybe you are. But we're still sinners, the Apostle Paul was very blunt and very clear about that in Romans chapter 3 when he said that we have all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. I love this verse because of the phraseology. We all have sinned. That's past tense. We all fall short. That's present active tense. We have sinned. We continue to sin. And we fall short of his glory. And because of that, we need a Savior because our sin separates us from God. You see, where sin is, God can't be. There, there, we created this separation. And what happened in that story in the Old Testament is Adam and Eve were pushed out of the garden. God went after them. But as we see throughout the whole story, 
As God pursues his people, the one thing God can't do is be involved with sin. So, so God needs you to stop and turn around. That's why the, the, the prophets often said, and why John the Baptist and even Jesus said, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And, and so as we read this, we, we understand that we are separated from God. Adam and Eve were banished. That was significant. That angel with the flaming sword, it's not just a cool visual. That was a powerful symbol that they weren't allowed back into God's perfect paradise because they had sin in their hearts. And, and forever now that's going to, to become part of who they are. And sin has an eternal punishment. I know we don't like to think about it, but it does. Romans chapter 6, Paul makes it very clear. He says, the wages of sin is death. And you may say, well, man, that's harsh. Well, I, like, how could a loving God do that? Like, God should love me for who I am. He created me this way after all. I've heard that before. And guys, the answer, I mean, I don't mean to make it sound mean. But that's, that's on us. That's on us. See, God isn't a cruel God. God is a holy God. God is holy and he can't be with sin. That sin separates us. It creates a gap for us. It creates a gap that we can't cross on our own. We can't fix on our own. I like to, uh, to think of myself as a little bit of a handyman. I'm sure my wife's going to roll her eyes when I say that. I can fix a few things around the house, but there's a lot of things I can't. And there's some stuff I can fix, but it's obvious I fixed it. Like you walk in, like, oh, Kurt's been here, right? <laughs> like it might work, but it doesn't look very pretty. There's some stuff too that I'm not even going to try, like electrical. I need some electrical stuff done in my garage. I'm not even trying that. Like I mess up and put a hole through sheetrock, I can replace a piece of sheetrock. I mess up with electrical wires, you're not going to see me next Sunday, okay? I can't fix some of those things on my own. I've got to call the expert. I've got to call the professional. I've got to call somebody who can. And with our lives, with that sin that separates us from God, we cannot fix that on our own. We can't. There is nothing you can do, no matter how good you are, no matter how charitable you are, no matter how much you care for others, you cannot fix that on your own. We're not capable. But the grace of God takes care of that for us. Because the same Paul who said the wages of sin is death in Ephesians 2 said, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And he says, it's not from yourselves. It's nothing that you've done. It's a gift of God. It's not by your own work so that you can't boast or brag about it. That God did it for us. God took care of that for us. That was the need of the Savior. And it was this Savior that the Israelites had been expecting for centuries and centuries to come and save them. But somewhere along the line, the Israelites forgot what Savior they were looking for. And they stopped looking for a spiritual Savior and they started looking for a political Savior. Because again, they were oppressed. They were taken from their homeland. They were exiled. They were treated badly. They were put into slavery. They were a persecuted people. And they wanted somebody to come in. They lived in darkness, oppression, loneliness, abandonment. If you deal with those, you eventually start to feel hopeless. Maybe some of you are there. See, in, in our day and time, we look at those things more like depression or loneliness. And Christmas is a time of the year that can make that even worse. 
always say that Christmas is usually the best time of the year or the worst time of the year. Depends on where you're at. Because what Christmas does is it puts a magnifying glass over your life and it amplifies whatever's going on. And so if that's you today, ask you the question, what Savior are you looking for? And I'm not trying to sound snarky with that at all. I'm, I'm asking an honest question. Because those, the Israelites, and the, the more oppressed they became, they were looking for that hero riding the white horse, wearing the white hat. Coming into town, playing the triumphal music. In fact, that's what they thought Jesus was. If you go deeper into the Gospels, that's what they wanted Jesus to do. That triumphal entry when he rode into to Jerusalem on the donkey, that was a symbolic, kingly expression. And they expected him to roll in and throw the Romans out. But what did he say? My kingdom's not of this world. That's not what he came to do, but that's what they wanted him to do. And too often, I think we do the exact same thing. Even those of us who are Christians, who call ourselves children of God, who have accepted Jesus, we still do this sometimes. We look for the Messiah in the wrong places. We make the wrong things our Savior, the wrong people our Savior. And we quit trusting God to do that. And here's the problem. When we look for salvation in the wrong places, folks, you're never going to get through the darkness. You'll just be stuck in there. Again, maybe you are. Maybe today you're looking forward and you say, man, things are just hopeless. My life feels hopeless. My life feels stuck. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. If you are, let me just give you some assurance. You're not alone. You're not the first person. But can I tell you where you can look? You can look to a Savior, Emmanuel, God with us. He was the light that came into the darkness. When the angel told Joseph that, that you're going to call him Emmanuel, that's what he meant. That's the entire purpose of Christmas. That is what we celebrate this time of the year. The Savior coming into a dark world and bringing hope bringing light, bringing peace. That's what he came to do. John chapter one, I love the intro, of the gospel of John. But he says this in John chapter one, in the beginning was the word, that's Jesus. That's the Greek word logos, meaning the all-encompassing, all-everything word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And you jump down to verse 14, and the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. That's what separates the Christian faith from all other religions in the world. We don't worship a God that requires us to earn our way to him. We don't have to climb that ladder to him. He came down to us. He became like us and became one of us so he could save us. He sent his son to put on human flesh and human limitations. Jesus got tired and hungry and, and angry and all the same emotions that we felt. Jesus wept and he mourned when he lost people close to him. He didn't have to do that. But he put on those limitations for our sake so that he could come reach the darkness. Because here's the funny thing about darkness. You, you probably know this. It doesn't matter how dark something is, the second light hits it, the darkness is gone. I heard stories uh, from a professor of mine once about uh, going to, uh, to Mammoth Caves in Kentucky. He said they got so far under the ground that at one point, the, the tour guide said, I'm going to turn the lights off. 
And he, he told him ahead of time. He said he turned the lights off. He said it was the darkest of dark I have ever experienced. He said you could actually feel the darkness on you. It was so dark. He said you could hold your hand right here and not see it. That's how dark it was. And he said after a minute, the tour guide flicked on just a tiny little light. He said you could see everything. Darkness has no answer for light. But think about this. You turn a, turn a light on, and unless it's like those old high school basketball gym lights, you know, that took 15 minutes to come on, what happens? It's gone. There's no fight. The light comes on and the darkness is gone. And the only way that changes is if the light goes out. And as a parent, you get this. Because I'm not necessarily afraid of the dark unless I'm in one place. That's my son's room. Because if I'm in his room and it's dark, I'm terrified. Not that somebody's going to jump out and get me, but that there's going to be something I'm going to step on that I'm going to have to crawl out of there. <laughs> and especially at our house in Oregon. This one here, it's not so bad. He's got a window that usually some light comes through. Our house in Oregon, his room was pretty dark. We had blackout curtains on it. And so if I was leaving his room, almost every time I'd, I'd pull my phone out and just hit the light really quick and then shut it right back off. Because even just that one or two second glimpse of what's in front of me, I can shut it back off. That image is now burned in my mind. I know where to go. I can navigate through the darkness. I'm not stuck wondering if I'm about to step on a, a Hot Wheel or a Lego. <laughs> I can make it. That's how darkness works. It has no answer for the light. My grandpa served in the army during the Korean War. He was up in, in Alaska, pitch black, out in the middle of nowhere. And they were trying to show them how even the smallest light can give you away. And a half a mile away, somebody flicked a cigarette lighter and they could see it in pitch, pitch black. Darkness has no answer for light. Jesus, our Emmanuel, was that light that came into the darkness that the Israelites had been looking for. He was their Messiah, whether they realized it or not. They'd been expecting him. Centuries earlier, the prophet Isaiah called out where he was going to come from and what he was going to be. He says this in Isaiah chapter 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I mean, just think about these names here for a second. This Messiah that's going to come is a wonderful counselor. A counselor leads, instructs, guides, gives wisdom. Mighty God, a God is in control of everything. A God knows everything. A God is eternal. He's an everlasting father. If you've had a good father figure in your life, you know that's a feeling you don't ever want it to end. He's everlasting, and he's a prince of peace. This one is especially significant as we jump forward to the, to the, to the Gospel of Matthew because under Roman rule, they had this mantra called the Pax Romana. And the Pax Romana was Latin for the peace of Rome, meaning We'll give you peace so long as you behave. Don't cause any trouble. We're not going to give you any trouble. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm the true peace. I am peace. Not what they're selling you over here. I'm the prince of peace. And we look at all this and we realize that through him we get this light into our world. And you say, well, what does it mean? This, this, 
Messiah who comes to save our sins and to be God with us. What does it mean? Simple. It means this. With Jesus, you'll be able to walk with peace through your darkness. You'll be able to walk with that. And this isn't some new revelation for us. This isn't like something that we've just figured out. This has been something that the people of God have known all along. King David knew this when he wrote one of the most famous things ever written, a passage that many of us turn to in our darkness. In Psalm 23, when he said these words, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. There's so many times that in my own life or in the lives of people close to me have been going through just incredible darkness. And there's complete peace. And you think, man, how do they have it all together? Well, maybe they don't, but they have God, and that's enough. They have Christ in their heart. They have the Spirit in their heart. And they have this peace and this comfort that doesn't make any sense to us whatsoever, unless you've experienced it yourself, unless you've had that yourself, because they're walking through that dark valley knowing this. I'll, I'll never forget the day that my grandpa passed away. And, and when they came in and told us that he was gone, None of us knew what to even think except for my grandma. <laughs> and I remember vividly, she took us by the hands and she prayed, we're walking through the dark valley, but you're with us. And she, through those words, comforted us. God, Emmanuel, is with us. But all of this has one big catch. One big catch. One big condition. And it's the challenge I want to give you guys today. Are you his? That's the question I want to leave you. Are you his? Because if you can't answer this question with a yes, then you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. You probably don't understand what that, that peace, that walking through the darkness with peace feels like. Are you his? You say, yeah, Kurt, I am. Great, I'm glad to hear that. But if you can't answer this question with a yes today, if you say, no, you know what, I'm not his. Like, I'm thinking about it, but I'm not. Can I just ask you a question? Why not? What's, what's keeping you from it? What's stopping you from it today? Because when he came to be with his people, to save his people from his sins, he did that with the expectation that we would receive him. That we would say, yes, I am his. Yes, I believe in him. Yes, I want to make him the Lord of my life. So let me just ask you something. If you're answering this question with a no, or with a I don't know, or with a I'm thinking about it, will you do me a favor? On that connection card in your bulletin, will you put that and put your name and drop it over here in these boxes? Because I want to talk to you in the next few days. I just want to share with you because this is the essence of, of, of my life. Before I ever call myself by any other label, before I'll ever call myself an American or an Oklahoman or a Kansan or a father or a husband, I call myself a member of the, of the, the kingdom of heaven, a citizen of his kingdom a follower of Christ. I call myself his. And I just got to tell you, there's times in my life, does it mean I've got it all together? Absolutely not. Does it mean that I'm perfect? Absolutely not. What it means though is I walk through that darkness without fear. 
I can face it. And I may not know where every step's going to hit, but I'm being led by somebody who does. I'm being guided by somebody who does, who takes me through that. John chapter 1, as he's giving this intro, the apostle says these words, the true light, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming to the world. It says he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. That's one of the most heartbreaking verses in the Bible. Verse 12, but to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus came for us. He came to save us from our sins. He came to be with us. So I ask you the question, are you his? Can you make that claim that you're a child of God? Christmas is such a lead to Easter for me. And I know sometimes people don't like to think about the death of Jesus when we talk about the birth of Jesus, but you can't have one without the other. He was born to die on the cross for us. And I think it's so interesting and neat when we talk about Christmas and we talk about this name, Emmanuel, that we see bookends in the Gospel of Matthew at both ends of Jesus' life on this earth. That before he even came, the angel said he'll be called Emmanuel, God with us. And just before he ascended back into heaven, the very last words he tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, I'm with you always, even at the end of the age. We're gonna step into our time of communion. If you didn't grab a packet on the way in, you can grab it all across the room on these black tables. But with communion, we celebrate the death of Jesus. But it's not just the death. You see, with communion, it's not just looking back at him dying on the cross. It's looking forward to the expectation that he'll also return for us. Emmanuel is with us. So as we take this, this, this bread and this juice today, as we take this moment to pause and to reflect on him, that's my prayer for you, that you would rest in him, that you would find him, that you would be with him. Father, we are so, so grateful for your son, Jesus. God, that he gave up what he had in heaven to come become one of us. God, that he walked the same path as us, that he was tempted in the same ways as us, that he struggled with some of the same things that we do. But God, he remained holy and he was obedient to you all the way to the cross. God, we're thankful for his life, for his death, that you loved us so much that you sent him to us. We pray in his name, amen. Amen.